Well, it's no mistake that chapter 9 follows chapter 8. Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? What I mean is chapter 8 is a spectacle of serious spiritual blindness. And chapter 9, Jesus overcomes blindness. What a beautiful demonstration of God's sovereign power in chapter 9. See, if Jesus can sovereignly open the eyes of a man born blind, well then he can also sovereignly give sight to a sinner born in spiritual blindness. John was very close to Jesus. He was an apostle, a disciple, one of the close inner circle of uh, three disciples along with Peter and James. John wrote this eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a historic narrative, really with an evangelistic purpose to persuade people. To persuade people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because John knew that believers would live and never die. It's clear that Jesus taught He was the chosen Messiah, and John has already depicted five miraculous signs in his book. Jesus turned water into wine. He healed an official son, healed an invalid, fed likely 25,000 hungry people, and walked on water. People saw Jesus do these things. Does anyone or anything in any time of history have those credentials? Most of us probably agree that God created the universe for His own glory. David wrote Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Everything from the Hubble ultra-deep field to an atom, from the Andes Mountains to the Mariana Trench, everything reveals the glory of God. Paul said in Romans 1.20 that, God's eternal power and divine nature are perceived clearly in creation. Creation reveals the glory of God. Paul said in Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are what? All things. To Him be what? Glory forever. Let me ask you a, a risky question. Does God receive glory through everything? even disability. Could blindness exist for God's glory? AIDS, heart disease, cancer. Be honest about this. Do you believe that God sovereignly decrees pain and suffering and struggle so He can receive glory? Another question, do you really believe that God is sovereign over everything even suffering? These are very important questions, practical questions and questions that the Bible answers. I I want you to hear, I want your heart to sing with joy when you hear a phrase like this, all things exist for the glory of God, even disability. All things exist for the glory of God, even disability. Now that's controversial, I recognize, but the question is, is it true? Let's see if it's true. According to verse 14, John 9 begins on the Sabbath. Here we go again. 
Verse 1 says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, we don't know exactly when or where this happened, but Jesus, the Messiah, noticed a poor blind man. This moment was planned by God. It was planned to reveal the glory of God through Jesus. How was it known that the man was born blind? Well, it doesn't tell us. But it's likely that people around this man knew his story. Imagine that, being blind in the first century. The first century doesn't have a a, a lot of the things that we have now. That's a hard life. That's a hard life then, and it's a hard life now. I read that doctors from St. Paul's eye unit from Royal Liverpool University Hospital in the United Kingdom restored the sight of John Barr, a 70-year-old man, by transferring, get this, transferring his vision from a worn-out section of his retina to a healthier section. Science is amazing. Science is absolutely amazing, but John Barr had macular degeneration or vision loss. He was able to see, but eventually he lost his central vision. That's much, much different than congenital blindness. One of the doctors involved with Barr's surgery said, quote, we have demonstrated, what we have demonstrated is that there is spare capacity for vision in the eye. Thus, when one part is worn out, as in macular degeneration, another part can be made to take over the work, end of quote. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. But very unhelpful to a man with absolutely no capacity in his eyes. The man in John 9 had no hope of ever seeing. Even today, outside of cataract and glaucoma, there is no cure for congenital blindness. This man was confined to a life of darkness, of dark suffering. And there was even controversy around his disability. Verse 2, check it out. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples assumed that this man's blindness was caused by either his or his parents' sin. Did the guy sin in the womb? There were people who actually believed that was possible. Wow. Did his parents do something to offend God? And that's why their son was born blind? That's what they're asking Jesus. That's what they are wondering. A belief circulated at that time that all suffering was a result of actual sin in someone's life. A belief that had been around for a while. Job's friends thought this about his suffering, but Job uh, was a righteous man and his sin was not the cause of his suffering. God told Satan in Job 1 that Job was blameless and upright and that he feared God and turned away from evil. Of course, we can assume that Job was sinful. He was born a man and so he had a sinful nature, but he loved and obeyed God. And Satan then suggested that this was because God made life easy for Job. That if Job lost all that he had, that he would curse God to his face. So our sovereign God authorized Satan to take from Job, to take some precious things, except not to touch Job himself. Why did Job suffer? Was it because of his sin? Later in Job 2.3, God said that Job held fast to his integrity. Job's sin didn't cause Job's suffering, but it was part of God's sovereign plan for him. So the disciples made an assumption. 
They made a wrong assumption that this man's blindness was caused by some sin committed by either him or his parents, and that's why he was blind. Now, in a general sense, sin has caused things like sickness, disability, suffering, and pain. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, the entire created order was impacted by sin. Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Adam and Eve's sin introduced pain and suffering previously unknown to creation. Sin brought horrible changes in God's created order. But the disciples were not talking about sin in a general sense. But in a specific sense, as in, because you lusted on Tuesday, you can't see on Thursday. It was that type of thing. Did they have a point? Now, we know that infants can contract fetal alcohol syndrome or things like that because their mothers sin by excessive drinking during pregnancy. But I don't think that the disciples were concerned about physiological abnormalities caused by chemical abuse or genetics. Who was the cause of this man's blindness? That was their question. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Listen to Ezekiel 18, 20. It says, The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. It says, The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Everyone answers for their own sin, not the sin of their parents. The man's blindness was not connected to his parents' sin. Listen to Ecclesiastes 9.2. Solomon says it this way. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil. In other words, blindness as an event could happen to the righteous or could happen to the wicked. It's not tied to the sin of those individual people. It's, It's not necessarily tied to someone's sin. Could we assume that disability is caused by some specific sin? No. The disciples were wrong. That's that's not to say God never causes disability out of judgment for someone's sin. In Luke 1, Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, struck Zechariah the priest mute because he didn't believe the prophecy that was given to him by the angel. In Acts 13, God struck Elymas the magician with temporary blindness because he was an enemy of righteousness and he was opposing the gospel. God is sovereign. He can cause disability for judgment if he pleases to do so. But we cannot assume all disability, even most disability, is direct result of sin in someone's life. So if a married couple has a child that is disabled in some way or ailing in some way, if you are disabled or ailing in some way, it does not automatically mean that God is punishing you or judging you for some sin in your past. And so he's getting back at you. See, our primary focus in suffering should not be the cause of our suffering, but the purpose of our suffering, God's purpose in our suffering. Everything in our lives is an opportunity to treasure Christ most and to trust in God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign will for our lives. Why else would Paul say that we should rejoice in our sufferings? It's because suffering produces endurance and character and hope and all those things glorify our God. 
We rejoice in suffering because Paul said, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As painful as suffering is, as much as we don't like it, it can lead us into deeper enjoyment of God's love for us. And that really, really glorifies and pleases God. Let me ask you an important question. Do you see your suffering as God getting back at you or failing you in some way. He's just not coming through for me. We shouldn't think that way. We should see our affliction as an opportunity to treasure Christ more, to draw closer to Him as He provides Himself for our suffering. In our suffering, He gives us the gift of Himself to find satisfaction and comfort in Him. Please do not miss the profound truth of verse 3. It is so important for you to understand verse 3 because it makes a difference in how you understand purpose, the purpose of suffering, the glory of God in suffering, and your greatest joy in the glory of God in suffering. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. There you have it. There you have it. So why did his blindness exist? But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Every second of suffering from this man's disability was for the purpose of displaying the powerful works and efficacy and glory of God in him. To reveal the glory of Jesus Christ as he worked God's sovereign plan God's sovereign healing power and mercy over congenital disability and genetics. God ordained his blindness for this spectacular day. Now you might be thinking, come on Jonathan, are you even serious? You mean to tell me God really causes suffering to bring glory to himself? Is that what you're saying? That seems cruel. I want you to consider Exodus 4.11, where God said this to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Consider Amos 3.6, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has caused it? The Lord has done it. We must never forget God's holy transcendence and supremacy and glory over all He has made. All things are God's. Humanity is God's. And all things exist for the glory of God. Sometimes just just read and reread and study and meditate on Romans 9 and ask yourself, is God sovereign over all things? Jesus is supreme over disability. Jesus is supreme over disease. And it all deserves and serves the glory of God. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that God has a purpose in everything, even suffering? Friends, this is what the Bible teaches. God has a sovereign and good purpose in everything everything, and that purpose is to reveal His glory. The Westminster Larger Catechism says that God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy decisions from the purposes of His will. 
By them from all eternity and for his own glory, he has unchangeably foreordained everything that happens in time. God ordains all things that come to pass. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Does that all things include blindness? Or is blindness somehow outside of God's sovereign reign and design? God foreordained this man's blindness as a way to display the powerful works of God in this man through Jesus Christ. And what we'll see in verse 38, a little taste of of the coming weeks, is God worked this suffering for the eternal joy and pleasure of the blind man. John 9.3 directly addresses God's grand purpose in all things, even disability, to reveal His work, His power, His mercy, His grace, His beauty, His glory. William Hendrickson, the great Dutch theologian, wrote, all things, even afflictions and calamities, have as their ultimate purpose the glorification of God in Christ by means of the manifestation of His greatness. Do you believe Jesus in verse 3? Do you believe Him? Do you believe the words of Jesus? And I want to make sure that you're tracking with this because I know that this is a, a difficult thing to wrap our minds Around And so I want to make sure that you're seeing it in the scripture. So would you turn in your Bibles to John 11? This is going to be important for us to see this. Flip open your Bible to John 11. I want you to see it in the text for yourself. We'll get to John 11 in about seven years. No, I'm, <clears throat> wow, we're on a slow pace, but not as slow as some. So be encouraged. We will finish the book sometime, hopefully in my lifetime. All right, so this John 11 is going to help us understand verse 3 because it's a parallel passage that's important to understand. Jesus heard that Lazarus was really, really sick. And Jesus said in John 11 verse 4, this illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Do you see that? Let me ask you a question. Why did Lazarus contract a deadly illness? So God would get glory and Jesus would be glorified through it. Think about that. Think about that. Do you trust what Jesus said here is true? Is even sickness and disability for the glory of God? Lazarus died. There was a glorious purpose in his illness and even death. And verse 15, Jesus told his disciples that he was glad, get this, glad that he wasn't there when Lazarus died. Now, why would a good friend say that? So that his disciples would believe in him. That's what, that's what the point is. Jesus was working out the sovereign plan of God using sickness and death for their faith and greatest joy in him. That's incredibly loving for Jesus to do. Well, Jesus joined his grieving friends. It is a sad scene in John 11. 
And in a very sad moment, after Jesus wept, he wept on this occasion, he said to Lazarus' grieving sister, Martha, verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Trusting God, even in pain, even in suffering, will result in seeing the glory of God. After, say, after saying that, what did Jesus do? Lazarus come forth. He raised him from the dead. He brought a dead man back to life. Why did Lazarus get sick? Why did Lazarus die? Go to verse four again. This illness is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. And then verse 40 just adds on top of that, the glory of God. So why was the man born blind? What was the purpose in his blindness? Did Jesus not say it was to display the works of God in the blind man? Are the works of God not for the glory of God? When Jesus worked, when he healed this blind man, he was doing the works of God. Do you remember John 5, 19, where Jesus said, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. When Jesus did the impossible that day, he was doing the works of the father. He was glorifying his father. Now let me ask you again. Do you believe that God has a purpose in everything, even suffering? If you believe Jesus on this point, if you're tracking with what he's saying, then every second of your suffering has the deepest, most profound meaning and purpose. Every second is an opportunity to reveal the supremacy and glory and beauty of Jesus in your suffering, to increase your joy in God. This truth has the power to help you endure the deepest possible pain and suffering for the glory of God and your greatest joy and pleasure in God. Think about how God used years and years of suffering in this man's life here in John 9 to produce wonder and faith and confidence and joy in him. Verse 38, it's an amazing verse, tells us that suffering, disability, darkness, and then healing produced worship in the heart of the man born blind. More than the gift of sight, this man was given the gift of spiritual sight to enjoy Jesus as the uppermost object of his worship. Jesus changed this man's life beyond giving him his sight, beyond physical healing. He healed the man's soul. The years of suffering, absolutely worth it. To see God reveal his glory. This is certainly a profoundly mysterious truth, folks. But every sickness, every ailment, every bit of suffering in your life is an opportunity for the glory of God to be revealed through your life. An opportunity for you to reveal the supremacy of Christ as you treasure Christ above comfort and ease. Paul said in Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time, how painful 
those sufferings can be. Amen? Anybody? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering for the glory of God in this life is worth it. When considering the glory of God revealed to us in the next life if we suffer well. Now this can be a tough point to understand. That even blindness can be for the purpose of God's glory to demonstrate His power and mercy. But when we consider the sufferings of Christ, when we consider the cross, we see that God is glorified in suffering. Andres Kostenberger wrote something very, very helpful, and I'll wrap up this this first point with a substantial quote from him, just because it's just so helpful. We need to take this to heart. This is what Kostenberger wrote. To believe that good can come out of evil takes faith and defies the world's conventional wisdom that bad is bad no matter what. It takes faith in a Jesus who can and does work miracles and in a God who allowed Jesus, who was perfectly innocent, to die a cruel criminal's death on a cross in order to bring salvation and eternal life to us who were perfectly guilty. Thank God that Jesus understood that he was not dying for his own sins, but for ours that he knew that God would ultimately triumph over the evil perpetuated upon him and that he trusted himself to him who judges justly. Let us do likewise and defy simplistic analysis of other people's or our own sufferings and see those sufferings as opportunities for God's glory to be revealed. That's a good quote. That'll preach. That'll preach. We must never forget that Jesus Christ reigns over disability and disease and even death. He has conquered disability, disease, and death. And that is our hope. That is our joy in disability, disease, and death. Let's keep going. We all must do the works of God now for the glory of God. We all must do the works of God now for the glory of God. Jesus said in verse 4, take a look. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Notice Jesus said we must work. Not just him, but his disciples alongside of him. By grace, he included the disciples in doing the works of God. Prior to the cross, and certainly after the cross, Jesus works with his disciples. And there's a little word in here that I, that I want to uh, mention. It's a Greek word, day. It's just a very simple word, which shows necessity. We must. We absolutely must work the works of him who sent me. It was necessary for his disciples to do God's work along with him unto the cross. Notice Jesus said, we must work. But then he says something interesting. Him who sent me. Him who sent me. God sent Jesus as the singular Christ. And through faith and union with him alone, his disciples do the works of God. This was yet another exclusive claim of Jesus Christ. Just saying who he was. I am the exclusive Messiah. I am the exclusive Christ. I am the exclusive God 
While it is day, and that referred to the pre-crucifixion time while Jesus was present in the world shining as the light, as verse 5 says, after his ascension, Jesus would shine as the light through his disciples, and night was his crucifixion, which was coming shortly. The disciples continued to do the works of God after Jesus went back to the Father. Jesus is still shining. Jesus is still working through his disciples. We need to get to work, Jerusalem Church. Jesus lived to do what God wanted, to bring him glory by revealing his glory in himself. Well, Jesus is the glory of God and shined as the light of the world. Jesus is the glory of God and shined as the light of the world. Jesus said it again, verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus radiated the glory of God and was about to illumine a blind man's eyes. He would fulfill Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light, a light for the nations. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out of the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison, those who sit in darkness. There was a blind man who was imprisoned in darkness. He couldn't see. His whole life was the shackles of blindness, of darkness, and spiritual darkness. And Jesus came to him. Jesus came to him and shined divine light so that the man could see. That day, the man gained more than his sight. He gained Jesus and he gained eternal life. This miracle only pointed, it was just a sign to get us to look at something greater, which was Christ as the light overcoming spiritual darkness in the hearts of sinners. That Christ is sovereign over the sinful heart. A few weeks ago, we listened to Jesus say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Jesus was about to change this man's life. He was finally going to allow this man to see, to cause him to perceive the glory of God in himself as the Messiah. The man would see it. He would experience it. This eyewitness account should communicate directly to you. Take this to heart. Jesus can overcome the darkness of your heart and heal you. He can shine light in you so that you see and savor the glory of God in him, in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus does for people. That's how Jesus opens blind hearts. There is a great connection between verse 5 and verse 6. Jesus said he was the light of the world, and then he performed the sign to prove it. Jesus heals for the glory of God. Jesus heals for the glory of God. Verse 6, having said these things, these things including I am the light of the world, having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud And said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he opened a blind man's eyes. Why? 
to exhibit the glory of God through the works of God. Jesus took the initiative with this man. Jesus spat on the ground. Now, in the New Testament, whenever Jesus spits, something awesome's happening. It's just great. You've got to check it out in the red. There's like three places where he spits, and then, oh my goodness. So Jesus made mud. Jesus anointed the man's eyes. It's all a little gross if you think about it too much, but it's incredible. It's incredible. Imagine what the disciples were thinking. Like, you know, I, what in the, what, what is he, what, oh, he's not good. Oh, that's gross. You know, oh, that's just gross. You know, I don't know what they were thinking, but if we would think like making saliva with the mud and just slapping it on some guy's face, it's like, that's not even going to work. You know, I don't know what they were thinking, but it doesn't really matter what they were thinking. It matters what happened. Bible scholars differ on why Jesus would have made mud, but I think there is a great connection. It's kind of hard not to think this way in a sense that at the very beginning, how was Adam formed? God took the dust of the earth and formed a man out of dust, out of mud, out of clay. And here he is taking saliva and mud and he's maybe, we don't know, but maybe reforming the man's eyes and creating eyes to be in him, to see. This is amazing. However he did it, it's amazing. Jesus said, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. In other words, go and wash your face off. Wash the mud off your face. Now, the pool of Siloam was, was a, um, a pool that was fed with water from the virgin spring, which was a a freshwater supply uh, in Jerusalem. The overflow of the spring was channeled then uh, to Jerusalem by these long aqueducts that were carved through solid rock for close to 1,800 feet. It was uh, an engineering, amazing engineering designed to ensure fresh water to the city if it had ever come under military siege. And uh, Siloam meant, meant sent or means sent, which probably refers to the water being sent through the aqueducts to this pool. From the Virgin Spring. The pool was in the southeast of Jerusalem and was about 53 feet long, 18 feet wide, and 19 feet deep. And the, uh, the Jews, during this water libation ceremony in the Feast of Booze, which we just saw a little bit ago, they would draw water from this pool of Siloam. All right, you can go there today and visit this uh, pool and see the remains in Jerusalem. Well, verse 7 says, the man did as Jesus said, and he came back seeing. Jesus healed him. The key wasn't the mud. The key wasn't the water, some magical power of the washing. The key was the sovereign power of Jesus over blindness. What a gift Jesus gave that man. But you know, there was a greater gift that he received that day from Jesus and it's in verse 38. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That day, Jesus enlightened the eyes of the man's heart. His soul was changed. His heart was changed. And he, he got faith. God gave him faith. And he gave him inter- eternal life. Psalm 146, verse 8 is very interesting. It says, Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. What a show Jesus gave them that day. That day they saw Yahweh open the eyes of a blind man. Perhaps the most astounding words in this whole you know, section of seven verses is, he came back seeing. Folks, I don't know about your experience. That doesn't happen. Jesus made a blind man see. Just a little aside 
there are times in a Christian's life we have heard, we've seen the flannel graph. You know what I'm saying? Oh, look at the little cute cutout man. We've seen the cartoon, right, on some Bible DVD or VHS. And it's become so old hat. Now, Jesus, like, healed some lepers and, you know, gave a blind guy his sight. Folks, if this happened right now, if I said piano, levitate, and it did, I mean, you'd all be, you probably should leave at that point because that's creepy. But you, you see what I'm saying? Like, this, don't miss this. Jesus made a blind man see. And when that starts to grip your heart of the sovereign power of God, then you will also be amazed when he tells the human heart, when he tells a sinner's heart, see my glory. See the glory of God. Be saved. And he opens the eyes of the blind. Can we just be awestruck by that? What God does in our hearts to save us, he came back seeing Listen, John wants you to know something simple. This is not hard. He wants you to know about a miracle. He wants you to know about a sign so that you believe in Jesus, so that you trust in Christ. John wants you to see in Jesus what he saw in Jesus, the grace and truth and divine power and mercy of God. Can you see the glory of God in Jesus Christ? Can you see that? Let's just go back to Kostenberger just a little bit and ask the question, do you believe that bad is bad no matter what? Jesus is making it plain here for you. God has a purpose in everything, a glorious purpose. He even has a purpose in suffering. To reveal to you his glory and to lead you into deeper joy, deeper pleasure, deeper fellowship with him. Let's pray. God, what a radically amazing, amazing scene that we're seeing in John 9. We're not even done with the chapter, but in the first seven verses, we see Jesus do something so incredible, it blows our minds. And maybe that's part of the problem. Sometimes, God, we get bored with these stories. We're like, it's just another story. God, I pray that this morning we would not jump over one of the most profound truths that we could ever know, that Jesus is God. He is sovereign, so sovereign, so powerful, so merciful, so beautiful, so gracious that he tells a blind man to see and the man comes back seeing. I pray that that strikes our heart at the deepest level. That I pray that our minds are blown by that. And that we're so enamored with what Jesus can do that we worship him and give our entire lives to him. That in the middle of our suffering, we would actually, unlike the world, but we would actually believe that there's a purpose in the suffering and that we would run to Jesus Christ, trust in Jesus Christ and say, show me the meaning in the most difficult thing that I'm experiencing in my life. Show me the meaning. Help me to survive. Help me not only to survive, but help me to endure for character and hope and love and joy in you. God, you have a purpose in suffering and disability and sickness and pain 
and it is the glory of you, the only God, the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, which can shine out from our suffering and tell the the hurting world who needs to see the glory of God that you are glorious. So God, I'm praying that you do a radical movement of faith and trust at Jerusalem Church to believe texts like verse three, that they could see in suffering and in disability and in pain and in heartache the grand purpose of the glory of God. In the name of your precious, precious Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.